Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs open their minds to new ideas and concepts that will help you during your entrepreneurial journey and during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 81. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas, and today we have Australian black belt, Kit Dale. Kit's training website, kitdaletraining.com, is one of the world's leading online training resources for BJJ. He spoke about overcoming self-limiting beliefs that held him back for many years and how mentors helped him through this process. He also talked about the importance of surrounding yourself with like-minded people. My takeaway from this episode came towards the end of the interview when he shared the 80-20 rule, which is also known as the power law or Pareto law, and how he applies in jiu-jitsu and business, which inspired me to title this episode, The 80-20 Rule in BJJ and Life. Stick around for my final thoughts after the interview when I expand on the topic of the 80-20 rule and how you can apply in your life. Stay tuned right after Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's message. Who's the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the nonprofit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, formerly Live Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe supports social projects who offer free Jiu-Jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facility makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coach donate all the profit of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit www.jujitsutribe.org. Let me introduce you to today's guest, Kit Dale. Kit is a black belt under Yuri Simões. He is one of Australia's most decorated Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competitors and has competed in and won competitions at the highest level across the world. Kit's training website, kitdaletraining.com, is one of the world's leading online training resources for BJJ. He has sold over 17,000 online training videos coupled with over 8 million views on YouTube. Kit says, I taught not my body how to remember a million routine patterns, but my mind to evaluate problems, select solutions, and execute in the moment. Kit, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So tell us how martial arts show up in your life and then eventually jujitsu, if you have practiced anything before jujitsu. Uh, I started martial arts as a kid with my uncle. We used to watch Bruce Lee movies a lot. And um, we started trying to practice stuff in his shed. He was obviously uh, years ahead of me. And we would sort of imitate what Bruce Lee was doing and Van Damme. And then I ended up getting into karate as I was getting into my early teens I started dabbling a little bit in boxing and kickboxing, but very small amounts. I did a little bit of ninjutsu. And then I ended up, I started playing Australian rules football for a while. And then I got into, it was mixed martial arts, but it wasn't mixed martial arts. It was kind of like everything. It was like Filipino, Khalid, stick knife fighting, MMA. And uh, after four sessions, we did some jujitsu. And I remember thinking, I'm going to smash this little dude because he was only small and uh, I was a bit bigger. 
And he absolutely annihilated me and really, you know, sparked my interest for, for jujitsu especially because I thought, well, if a guy that's small and unathletic can, can destroy me and I was playing high level football at the time, then there's something really good that I need to learn about this. Now, how do you feel jujitsu relate to life? I feel like there's a lot of crossover. I think the most important thing with jujitsu in life is that it teaches you to step outside of your comfort zone a lot. There's a lot of very confronting and real aspects of jujitsu compared to a lot of other martial arts. I mean, I did karate for years and I never did any kind of proper sparring with karate. So yeah, I looked really good when it, when it was uh, demonstrated with carters and stuff like that, but there's not a lot of truth to it where in jujitsu, from day one, you're sparring and you're really seeing where you're at with it. And I feel like that's quite confronting and it, it forces you to face a lot of demons you might have. I, I remember I was quite claustrophobic at that time. So if anyone ever pinned me on the ground, I would have a, like a complete panic attack because I hated being pinned without you know, being able to escape. But jiu-jitsu made me feel a lot more comfortable with that. And, and it really allowed... It was it created a medium for me to battle my own demons, especially with stepping outside of my comfort zone, developing confidence and in, in areas like that. So I felt like once I got the confidence that I could achieve these things in jujitsu, I started looking at other areas of life that I could also achieve similar things and financially uh, with, with film and, and, and everything. So I feel like it, it is uh, one of the best forms of discipline for anyone to learn. And how long have you been training jiu-jitsu now? I started jiu-jitsu in 2008 and I, I had a pretty good run until I hurt my knee. And in 2014, I think I had two and a half years off. I, I needed a knee reconstruction. I was playing Australian rules football at the same time I, I was training jiu-jitsu and I ended up hurting myself really bad. I snapped my, my anterior crucial ligament. I tore my... MCL, my LCL, my PCL, and I split the meniscus. So I needed uh, immediate surgery, but I didn't have any kind of insurance and I didn't have any money at the time. So it took me a year to end up landing a role in film and then uh, gave me the money to pay for the surgery myself. And about six months after surgery, I decided to get back into training. So I, I, I've been training for 11 years. Well, I started 11 years ago, but I've only been training for probably eight years. Okay. So do you remember when, when do you have a spark to start pursuing kind of the entrepreneurial side of jujitsu mixing with some of your, the acting you do, but when was that spark that said, you know what, I can actually pursue something here? Well, the first uh, time I realized I could make money, I, I, first off, I won the Abu Dhabi as a blue belt and I think I won 5,000 US dollars, which I was like, Oh, that's nice. You know, the first time I've made money doing something, the next year I won the purple belt and I think I won seven or $8,000 this time. And I got silver at the brown belt the year after. So I was making tiny amounts of money, but at the time it was, it was quite big uh, through competing. So that was the first part I realized, well, I, I probably have a little bit of a promising career if I stick to it. But it wasn't until I met a, a guy named Nick Gregoriatis and I met him online and he was selling a book that he created called the Jiu-Jitsu Blueprint or the Black Belt Blueprint, I think it was. And I, I had a, a small email list of 2,000 uh, 2, emailers, uh, subscribers. 
And he said, look, if you send it, he said, if you read it and you like it and you send it to your, your email list, I'll give you half of the profits, 50-50. So I, I read the book and I thought it was really good. I thought it was clever. So I thought this could help people. So I sent it to my email list and I, I think I made $2,500 off that alone. And I thought, wow, this, uh, you know, I didn't really ever think that you could make money doing not much. And then I, uh, after that moment, I kind of realized, well, maybe I should start looking into coaching and, and helping people. I was a, I was a black belt already and I, I had a quite a quick progression to black belt. It was four years with no prior grappling experience. And I discovered a lot of things along the way when I started studying pedagogy and, and psychology and, and the biology of learning. So I thought I can really help people change the way they look at jiu-jitsu and change the way they learn jiu-jitsu. So I started uh, creating, a, I created a product with Nick because I had no idea of the back end of, of what it took to market anything. I just knew I had the knowledge. So I, I got together with Nick Gregoriatis. We created a product called Beyond Jiu-Jitsu where we had you know 20 of our our uh, best concepts each. Actually, I think we had 10 of our best concepts each and we used different techniques to, to, uh, as examples for the concepts. And it sold really well. I think in the first year we made $70,000 off of that. So that was kind of like the first time I realized, well, I can make money outside of you know, a, a normal nine to five job. And it was 2010 that I quit my job and I haven't worked a nine to five job since then. And I've basically been selling programs online, my own jujitsu content. I, I moved away. I did another video with Nick and then I went on and I started doing my own content. And that was when it re the ball really started rolling. I think we started that in 2014 and we've sold uh, 17,500. Uh, we've had 17,500 purchases and that's, you know, some of them are bundles. So, you know, it's got a potential of around anywhere between 25,000 and 50,000 products we've sold so far from, uh, from my online channel. That's incredible, man. And how was the mindset when you made the decision to quit your job to pursue this entrepreneurial side of uh, jujitsu? Because there are a lot of listeners who right now are in transition and they're thinking about pulling the trigger and doing exactly what, what you did or stop doing what they're doing. And maybe they have a side gig right now, but they're always sometimes waiting for the moment. Oh, I just wait. I just need this here more. I just need six more months. I just need this course. I just need this and that. So how was that, that transition for you? Well, I, I just pulled the trigger on that. I didn't wait. Uh, I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have any kind of backing up. I remember I was pretty much... When I first quit the job, I, I was teaching a private or two a week and that, it was quite cheap privates. Uh, you know, back then I think I was charging $65. So I was making just enough money to scrape along. And I really, I downsized all my expenditures. I, uh, I moved onto a couch instead of, you know, having a room and stuff like that. Anything I could save money on, I was. And, and that kind of helped me a lot. I feel like one of the biggest problems with people wanting to pull the trigger is they're too scared to downsize their living standard. You know, they've True. maybe they've had a certain job that's paying a hundred thousand dollars a year, but they hate working like that. So they want to start their own company, but they're too scared to downsize their living, maybe sell their house, move into a smaller place. Uh, my brother did this and it was a great move for him. He had his own place, his own house, his wife and a kid, and they decided to sell the place and live with their mother-in-law 
and it was just in the shed. They just plastered the shed up. So they just had a small shed. They plastered it up and they lived in there for a year, but it really allowed him to create his own business. And now he's got seven people working for him. He's got a brand new, huge house, the cars. He's doing very well with that. So I, I feel like you're right in that sense. People wait too long or they're too scared to downside the, downsize their life. So I scaled down. I started working my ass off and I kind of, I just had this mindset and I was very lucky at the same time. I, I met a really good mentor named Danny Voyer, who's a multi, multi-millionaire in Australia. And he took me under his wing a little bit and, and kind of helped me with a lot of my mindset to really understand that we can achieve things much, you know, much bigger than what we, you know, originally thought a lot of the time, you know, most of us are kind of programmed on, you know, nature and nurture, how we were brought up and, you know, what kind of belief systems we had. He kind of broke a lot of my old debilitating belief systems and really helped me understand that I could really do to a certain limit, whatever I want, as long as I'm willing to one, believe in myself and two, put the work in that's necessary to achieve those goals. So I was in a good place mentally. I, I remember I was waking up, I was doing affirmations. I would say certain things in my head. I had a vision board. I would psych myself up in the morning and, and all day I was constantly thinking, I'm trying to think of ideas and how to grow this business and where to go. And, uh, so I, I do feel like a huge part of that was just changing my mindset. And what did you say? It's one old belief that you had that are you that changed drastically in your life because sometimes people are listening and they think they're the only one that have this kind of belief, you know, and then things that you look back right now, you just go like, wow, I can't believe I, I used to think like that, you know, and for a lot of the listeners make sure that, you know, you're not alone, <laughs> you know, as long as you're growing, you're going to look back. And you're just going to laugh at some of the things that he used to believe. And then maybe could it be like six months ago, you're like, oh, wow. And just changed. So what did say one old belief that was pretty powerful when you changed? One of, one of the main, main beliefs that I had was that I was dumb. And uh, a lot of that was due to the education system. I really struggled in school to, to do well. The main reason I struggled was I struggled to focus. I really didn't enjoy the industrial age system and the way they taught things. Um, so it was very hard for me to have confidence in myself because I thought I was stupid. The other thing was I didn't really believe in myself because of, of, of certain factors. The way I grew up, I thought I was very lazy and I was always told I was lazy. And, and it wasn't till later on that I kind of looked at things and I, I felt that it was a kind of a blessing in disguise because I was too, what you would call lazy. I was too lazy to, to go work for someone else and really bust my ass doing something that I didn't enjoy to make enough money just to continue doing that cycle. I got fired for, excuse me. I got fired from probably 11 different jobs and <laughs> which is not something to brag about, but I just wasn't a really good worker because I was uh, I didn't really enjoy it and I was, I was very lazy and I'd be happy to, you know, any day where I was sick or they called in and said I had a day off and I was excited about that. I, I would rather be broke and, um, and enjoying my life than, and then being super rich and hating the way, what I was doing. So I, I was under the impression that I was really lazy and dumb. Uh, when I kind of realized later on that I was not lazy, I was efficient and I wasn't dumb. I was just using, you know, my, my belief on myself was based on my scores in school. And I kind of realized that that's not the only way, you know, the only judge of, of intelligence, for, for example. And it, it's really a system that's failed a lot of people, not just myself. And 
once I started learning jujitsu a lot quicker and I started doing and performing really well in other things, I realized, well, maybe I'm not done. Maybe I can work on this. So I started working on myself consistently and not just, uh, more in, in, in a sense, for, for example, my speech was terrible. I used to mumble a lot more than what I do now. I was very shy. I, I didn't have a lot of confidence. I had to work on a lot of these things to, to be who I am today. And that took a lot of time. So I kind of realized, and that one of the main things where I know I've gone around with this, but was that I could really change who I am to who I want to be instead of having a, a static mindset of like, no, this is who I am and this is what I, I can do. I realize now that if I'm willing to one, believe in myself and two, put in the effort, I can be whoever I want to be and I can achieve things far greater than I, than I ever thought. And originally, like when I first started jujitsu, this is to give you an idea of my belief in myself. I remember thinking, well, if I train for 10 years, I can eventually get a black belt and I might be able to open a school and, and make just enough money so I don't have to do something I don't enjoy to, to make a living. And then within a year, I, I had to change that goal to, okay, I want to get my black belt in three years and I want to become a UFC world champion and, and do all these bigger things. Now, it didn't all eventuate one it took me four years to get a black belt not three and i never went into mma I, I changed my mind on that but i just started setting my goals much higher and even my goals now where fi my financial goal i remember three years ago i had a financial goal to make two hundred thousand dollars in a year and that year i didn't make that much money i think i made a hundred thousand dollars but the year after that i made four hundred thousand dollars and you know so my goals now financially have gone to you know multiple million instead of back in the day I would have only ever thought I could ever make a hundred thousand dollars at the most so everything in my life I've, I've gotten more confidence and I've worked harder and now I'm starting to see that the possibilities are becoming more endless and I can imagine in two or three years my goals are gonna completely dwarf the ones I have now and one thing that you mentioned that I think the listeners need to pay attention right at the beginning you said about how important was having the mentor you know someone that really helped you to have that shift because sometimes that's all you need you know someone to kind of challenge you and, and just ask you a few questions that you're like huh I never thought about that and I think it, everyone should have some type of mentor someone you look up to someone that is doing something that would like to be doing and um, yeah. Do you have other mentors or he has been the main one? Yeah, I definitely have other mentors. A lot of them are people that don't even know who I am. So they're people that I, I read books on and I, and I look up, for example, a great philosopher, Alan Watts. He has a, there was one video that really, really inspired me. And he, he made a video where he asked you, what would you do if money were no object? How would you spend your life? How would you spend your days if money were no object? And then he tells you to go and do that thing. Because if you are chasing money, you're going to spend your life completely wasting your time. You'll do that in which you do not enjoy just to make enough money to keep doing that in which you don't enjoy, which is crazy. So it's better to live a short life doing stuff you enjoy than a long life suffering. So that was a really, you know, a really cool quote. That, and, and I always ask people the same question when they come to me for advice. I ask them, you know, what would you do? Like, forget about money. How would you spend your days? What do you enjoy doing? And it's, it's a little bit different to what most people usually ask themselves. Usually people like, uh, how, do I, how am I going to make money? So I'm like, what do you enjoy? And then find out a way to make money around that. 
And for me, like the jujitsu is what I really enjoyed. So it was a no brainer for me to start working at how can I help people in jujitsu and make more. And then I got, I moved into different fields, but he was one mentor. There was another life coach that I met and it was great because he, he sat me down and I did like a 500 question exam. And in the end, he told me a lot about myself, which made a, a lot of sense. And the, the one thing that stood out to me, I'm not very procedural. I'm not very emotional, but I'm very analytical and I'm extremely conceptual. So knowing these things, I realized that when I need to work with someone, I don't want to work with someone that has the same traits as me. I want to work with someone has the, you know, the opposite of what I have. So anytime I'm looking for a partner in business or life, I always want to make sure that they're emotionally intelligent, like a high emotional and high procedural. Because for me, I can have amazing ideas, but I have no idea how to implement them or where to start. And if I can get someone that does know how to implement my ideas, then suddenly we have a business on our hands. So that was one, one great thing that he taught me. But the, the most important lesson in, in, in this situation is to surround yourself with people who inspire you and push you. Otherwise, a lot of the time, I grew up in the country in, in Australia, and it was, it was the Yarra Valley in Australia. I had 52 students at my whole primary school. Most people have 52 students in a class. I had 52 students in my whole primary school. That's six grades. It was a very secluded area. It was mostly Italian and Dutch immigrants that, ba that barely spoke English, that were farmers. My dad came from a very broken family. I mean, he, he, he grew out of that and he went his own way, which is great, but his family was very broken. Mum's family were first-generation Italians. So I didn't have a lot to go off in terms of that kind of business at all. And the people that I was hanging out with were in the eastern suburbs. It wasn't a very rich area, for, for example, or they were very high-class area. There was a lot of gangs and stuff like that. I went to a, a public school. It was a cheap school. And everyone, you know, not everyone, but most of the people that I grew up with are still doing the same thing they were doing back then, just drink, you know, working their jobs that they hate just to drink on the weekends. So for me, a big part of that was leaving that crowd and pursuing people that were doing the things that I wanted to do and surrounding myself with people who inspired and motivated me. And once I started doing that, it was much better. And I feel like I've done that a lot, especially since moving to LA, because the people that I'm hanging out with now, are, and they're all highly successful people in, in different areas and highly competitive. And it's a lot of fun. Like we, I, I train a lot of jujitsu with these guys, but these guys are very successful businessmen. One of my best friends, Paul Sean, he's a a top real estate uh, guy here. He basically they build buildings and, and sell it. And he's a he's absolutely killing it in business. But he's a black belt in jujitsu as well, and a high like a good competitor in jujitsu. He's also a division one wrestler. My other buddy is uh, a guy I've trained with as well. He's working on Avatar right now, and he's a stunt coordinator, and he's just killing it. And so I'm surrounded by people that are constantly inspiring me and helping me, you know, pursue the goals that that I want to do, and and vice versa. I'm trying to help them with any information I have. So I feel like once you surround yourself with people, especially entrepreneurs and ones that think outside the box, everything becomes much easier. Man, that was great. And one of the things of the podcast that I like is um, first you're mentioning some of the mentors that they don't even know you exactly, the virtual mentors, which there are plenty of them. Man, there's some of the, especially old school speakers that really made a huge impact in my life and get some um, like Les Brown, someone that I always look up to, or Jim Rome. He passed, I think, in 2012. 
And he always talked about this, about surround, surrounding yourself with like-minded people. And one of the quotes that I think made the most impact with me, he talks about the associations, personal, you know, personal associations you have in your life and saying that success is something that you attract by the person you become. And you're the average of the five people you hang out the most with. So depending who you're around, who you're going to become. And I think it's, uh, it's so important to have that kind of self-awareness. You know, if someone is trying to get out of the habit of drinking and smoking, but the five people hang out the most, you know, they, they drink and smoke, you know, good luck with that. I mean, it's, it's going to be hard. So being aware of that, I think it's really important. And one thing that, for example, people run, that would be a good suggestion for people. Sometimes there's maybe a specific topic, this for the listeners, that you're, you're passionate about, you like, but you don't know anyone that actually does that, you know, and that, and you want to talk about this. That's the cool thing about the podcast, that I don't have sometimes a lot of people that I can just chat about entrepreneurship and life, and I love that, you know, so that's why I'm like, man, I want to, I want to get a podcast with that, and then so you can talk about this, and whoever likes that kind of talk, can uh, can enjoy so looking for something that maybe in my case uh 2012 i got involved with public speaking so i didn't know anyone that really uh like uh, um, speaking engagements or public speaking or whatever so i joined toastmasters so first i just went to google what is out there you know and then i found out about about uh, Toastmasters. And then there's meetup groups that you can, I don't know if they have in Australia, but in US, it's just basically, you can type whatever topic you like, whatever. That would be a group of people hanging out and talking about this in a coffee shop or whatever, you know? So this is a great way. And even uh, meetup, they have this, the, uh, uh, the Toastmasters. So through Toastmasters, and then I met my my public speaking mentor as well that took me to the National Speaker Association. So everything around speaking that I didn't know anyone at all. There's no one that can really talk about this. But then I start to, man, Google, just go search, like, where can you talk with people about that? And then next thing I was, I was able to, uh, to go to events, to connect with people. And I still do. I'm still, uh, work with my mentor and be able to help him in public speaking events. And I enjoy, I really like to go and listen to their content, listen to their, uh, their skills of sharing their message. So this is a, a great suggestion. I suggest really explore that, you know, try to look for maybe people who are doing the same thing, Google meetup groups, anything that you can really hang out and, and talk about this. And so many people, Online, someone's talking about something that you like. That's for sure. That's as small as it is. There's someone talking about that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think one of my one of the really good sources lately is the masterclass.com where they have different masterclasses and so many different things and they have like cooking and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm in, I'm in film as well. So I, I look at a lot of the acting ones in there and the comedy ones. And it's so good. We live in such a, an, an awesome time where you have so much information just right in front of your screen. And like you said, I think my friends are, use the Toastmasters doc, uh, Toastmasters meetup thing as well. I'm pretty sure they do in, in, in LA because I remember them talking about that because 
they're very successful and they, they need to, you know, they want to help people and do speaks, but they, they're petrified of, of public speaking. I mean, I know I was petrified of public speaking when I was younger as well. I remember I won a competition for the, it's called like the most valuable player in the league competition. And I was so scared and nervous about doing a speech that I had to get so drunk to go up there. I can't even remember what I said up there. You know, and this, like, I, I don't, I don't drink anymore. I stopped drinking like seven years ago. And it's funny what you said before about like, you know, if you don't want to drink, hang out with people that don't drink. I don't drink anymore. And now 95% of my friends coincidentally don't drink either. And it was just so funny. You kind of just attract these kind of people in your life as you, you make decisions or you hang out with them. You kind of like, you, you get into that, uh, that mode of thinking and you start you know, learning off each other. Another example, I've got a friend, Louise, come to LA as an actor. And then he ended up creating his own show called To Catch a Cheetah, where basically he finds girls or guys that are worried that their partner's cheating on them. And then he puts them to a test with a secret, secret camera. And then he films the, the reactions and talks to the partners. And that, that blew up. It's on Amazon now. And, and he's, he's really done very well off that. But now he's also like looking at what I'm doing with the products and now he's moving into that field as well. So we're kind of bouncing ideas back off each other and trying to help each other. So it, it's so fundamentally important to have people like that or access to people that are doing the things that you want to do. Yeah. And one person that you mentioned, Nick Grigordia, is he was here on episode 29. So he's a guy that uh, after the interview him, we, we still connect and, and chat once in a while. We check up and, and talk about all kinds of different things. So he's a it's a great guy, great connection to have to talk about so many different things and especially uh, growth, you know? So I like, I like where his, uh, his mindset is. Yeah. Nick's an awesome, awesome guy. I really, I would like to hang out with him more. I think he's in America. I'm living in LA now. I think he's, yeah, he's in, he's in Arizona, Arizona actually. Yeah. But, so um, he's about maybe I think hour and a half from me. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Where are you? I mean, I mean, Tempe, Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. So about an hour and a half uh, for me. So that's pretty cool. Um, so what did you say? It's uh, some of your toughest entrepreneurial experiences going into this world and be like, oh, I didn't know that. And you kind of learn a little lesson. What did you learn from it? Uh, what pops up in your mind? I think uh, just understanding the attachment you have to things mentally is really important. I think you, with anything, when you're developing, you learn a lot about yourself. And I went from being a kid that never had any money to suddenly someone who is making, you know, uh, $400,000 a year, which is well above the average. I mean, I think that's in like the 0.01% of, of people. And I thought that I was always under the impression that when I start making good money, you know, decent money, I'm, uh, it's going to, all my stresses are going to be gone, but it, it doesn't really work like that. There's two things I noticed that, my stresses about not having money changed to my stresses about losing money that I had. That was the first thing I started realizing that I had a connection with this money. I remember there was one stage where I'd saved up uh, $85,000 and I thought that I'd paid my marketer, you know, $6,000. And then I realized I hadn't paid him and I had to pay him. And then I saw the money go down and I was like depressed for the day because I, I saw my money go down. And it's like not even a big deal at all in the big scheme of things. But like I, I ended up getting like a, an unhealthy attachment to the money that I had, which stunted my growth originally with my, with my business where I should have really invested more back into the business. But I, I noticed that I was becoming attached to the money. I think they call this 
dragon sickness in Lord of the Rings where the dwarves had that, like when they had their gold, they just become, you know, obsessive about that. So I realized that the stresses change from not having money and wanting money to not wanting to lose money. And then the other thing I noticed was there's no real cap on comfort. I think a lot of people, including myself, were under the impression that when I make this certain amount of money, I'm going to be happy and I'll feel comfortable. The moment you get there, you realize you just changed the, the, you know, the level yeah. of where be happy. So I, I was always like, once I make $100,000 a year, I'm going to be happy. And then I was like, okay, I'm making 100,000. Now I think I need to make 400,000. And then you make four and then you think, okay, I need 2.5 million. And it just keeps going and your life can get up and up. And it, it kind of just, I realized that it's really important to pursue something that you enjoy doing that financially rewards you than it is trying to find something just to make money in which you don't enjoy. Because the money's not going to change that much in, in, your, in your happiness. Uh, I think they found that I think above $75,000 a year doesn't make any difference, you know, after, you know, whatever money you do. Of course, you have a better standard of living. You can help people, more people, and uh, you have a lot more power to do good things. So I think there's nothing wrong with money, but it's just really important uh, trying to figure out how you want to make money than it is how to make money, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, totally. And I feel that one realization that I have, I had, I don't know a year when was, many years ago but when i realized that i'm not gonna take anything with me to the coffin you know what i mean one day everything that that it's my house someone else gonna live here one day you know what i mean the my house so that that helped me to really be detached with things uh, um i I do okay. Let's say I, I i live the life let's let's put this way i live the lifestyle that i want to live doing what I'm doing, um, running my business. Like uh, I mentioned, I'm going, we're uh, recording this November, 2019. I'm leaving to Brazil next week for three weeks. So I can go uh, do my thing, uh, visit my family, uh, do what I want to do. And, and still have my business going and live the lifestyle that I want to live. And I don't know, it, it was a time that was like, oh yeah, you know, in this house, in this car. And then you get older. I'm like, dude, I'm not taking, do I really need to give an explanation to people of how big my house is or the, I just, I don't know, as, as I get older, some of those things just start to make so many, uh, like to less sense. And one of the things that I'm going to Brazil too is I have a, uh, I co-founded a nonprofit about 10 years ago to help social projects. Uh, most of them are in Brazil and we've helped some in the U.S. as well, but all related to jujitsu. And for me, like going to those, uh, those places and helping, you know, like that is like so much more fulfilling for me at this point in my life. You just start getting older. You want to have the feeling that you want to help more, you know, and every year I, which I like that I'm getting less and less detached from the, the material things, you know what I mean? Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you. I feel like I've definitely noticed that. A lot on my journey, especially I'm right into like Buddhist philosophy and I'm always trying to find the fine line between completely detaching myself and also existing in this uh, economic situation that we have. True. Because the more emotionally detached I, I become, the less motivated I, I become to do anything, uh, anything in society, like for example, to make money or anything like that. And I always think if I'm, 
the more content I am, the more unlikely I'm going to do a lot of work to solve certain problems or for financial gain or to help people. So I'm always trying to figure out what is that fine line between, you know, being content and happy with what you have and also being a good part of, of society to where you're putting your effort in. And the way I try and justify this is you don't, it doesn't serve this system or the people to live very, very small in a way, in a, in a sense, because the, the better I do, for example, with my company, the better I do, the more people I sell products to, the more people I help. Mm-hmm. The more people I help, the more money I make, the more money I can give people to do other work for me. So now I have a team of, of three people working for my company, which I never had. So now they can work and they enjoy what they're doing because it's, they're passionate about doing what they're doing. So you kind of like, I, I try and justify that with the better I do financially, the more I can help people in, in any way I can. Also, there's obviously ways you can not do that. And, you know, but I, I'm trying not to sort of be in that, but it's definitely like a fine line. And I agree with you 100% what you just said. And it just hit me when you said it, where you're like, you know, when I die, I'm taking nothing with me. And I think it's something we need to remind ourselves in because there's a lot of people that get stuck in that, that rat race of, you know, consuming different things and collecting different things. And they forget that soon you're going to be gone and none of that's going to matter. And the small, you know, uh, the small spikes of dopamine that you get when you buy yourself stuff, it's very short lived and you don't want to be addicted to that. Like what you said you were doing with, with um, your cause and helping people is so much more fulfilling. And I would definitely love to be in a position financially where I can start doing that and traveling around and, uh, and helping people. But it's very hard to travel around helping if you can't financially Absolutely. get stuff around. Absolutely. And always mention here too, that's the reason why they say when the plane is going down, put the mask on you first and then we put on others. Otherwise, you try to do all that for others and then you're, you're passed out and now you cannot help anyone. And about the fine line that you mentioned, another expression that I learned from Jim Rome, he said, you should live in a state of mind of ambitious and content. You know, sort of like, oh, how can you do both? But like, yes, I am content where I'm at. I'm happy where I'm at. However, I'm ambitious as well. So it's like ambitious and content. So it's not just content. I'm in my comfort zone and it is what it is. But it's like, yeah, you just at the same time, you're ambitious, you are ambitious and you're looking for other things. And I think it's part of like for you, uh, for me or any of the entrepreneurs listening, anyone who has an entrepreneurial DNA, you'd get way too bored if you don't, if you don't do other things ambitious. You're always going to be like, man, I want to do a little project and something. You know, it's a, I think it's a common thing for people who are the, have that entrepreneurial DNA. Yeah, hundred percent. And I love that that saying you just used about the you know put your mask on first. I feel a lot of people, and I'm including myself, have fallen into the trap of wanting to help people too early. In and and it comes from a, a good place. And I see this a lot, you know, with people that maybe they uh, help people with certain things emotionally, but they're a wreck themselves because they're always focusing on helping other people, but they never sat back and thought, you know, maybe I should really work on myself because yeah, you can help people. And I feel like this is where people sort of, they plateau when it comes to a business is they get to a certain point and they start trying to help people there, which is only going to get you, you know, a small area. But if you spent more time investing in yourself, 
then later on you can help a much larger audience. Yeah. And uh, even with my transition in, into, into helping people, because you know, in the end, the thing that I love most about what I do is the messages I get where people say, Kit, you change the way I look at not only learning, but jujitsu, uh, sorry, not only jujitsu, but learning in itself. And, and they're just they're grateful and it makes me feel so good. And jujitsu is still such a niche sport or a niche art that now I'm transitioning into film and my brother's directing his first feature film for Millennium this year in Bulgaria. So he's, he's doing really well on the writing and the directing and we've written some stuff together and he is phenomenal. He's been working on that stuff for 15 years and now he's got his first big break and I know that we're going to work together and I feel like that's like the next step of helping people because there's no bigger at the moment, there's really no bigger medium in which to touch people than film because everyone watches movies and you have the rare ability to give someone an emotional experience in which they could never in, in, in real life. And I'm, most of us like movies because we like seeing people that we can relate to in, in uh, very serious situations, high stakes situations and how they react. And that gives you, you know, you can sit there and imagine you're in a haunted house and have that feeling of fear, or you can watch a, you know, some romantic comedy or whatever it is, but either way, there's no better way to send a message and to, to touch people than film at the moment. And I really feel like that's where we're transitioning and uh, right now as well outside. So still obviously coaching and I'm not competing as much. I've got some injuries in, in, all over my body as you would know with with competing it, it happens and i want to transition more into into making films and, and helping people on a much larger scale eventually got it now um what did you say is a one habit that you practice daily that has helped you in your life you, you mentioned earlier some of the habits like affirmations and vision board and things that you have done so what did you say that you practice daily Definitely, definitely the affirmations and stuff help. I try, and this is something I'm working on, and I try to meditate as much as I can. But the, I think the most important thing is really filtering out your thoughts. Uh, you have, I think it's 26,000 thoughts per day. More. And depending on, yeah, more, <laughs> especially with some of us. And I think the more you, you become a victim to your thoughts, the harder it is to steer your ship to where you want to go. And I, I feel like the thoughts create an emotional reaction and the emotional, the emotional reaction create further thoughts and you can spiral down into a depression after a while, or you can spiral yourself up into, you know, an amazing uh, mindset. So I don't, like I said before, I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink coffee. I don't have any kind of stimulants. I try and eat as much whole foods as I can and the most important thing of all is just making sure that I'm very aware of the thoughts that go through my head and I make sure that I focus on only the things that I really want to attract or I want to have going in my head. And it's not always easy. I've had anxiety for, for most of my life. So that's been a huge battle for me is just making sure that I can think of what I really want to think. Anxiety is like where you have a million thoughts and they're going through the wrong areas. So I think the, the number one thing I can, I can say is just be very aware of what goes through your mind and you're not your mind. You are just you and you can really start deciding on what you listen to and change the stories that you keep telling yourself. Yeah, this is man for everyone. This is a 24 seven work to have the self-awareness. I think I started my journey 
with self-awareness about 10 years ago. And it's not that like I'm completely naive or whatever, but I'm saying like to be, uh, to start to really pay attention of what my mind is saying, becoming more emotional intelligent. This is definitely a, a practice that you have to be aware that meditation helps top it's having little breaks just to kind of man let me breathe just for like a second t a three like deep breath like like i said you know we since young we don't question what is coming in our head sometimes just the thought comes in and like oh it must be true and then you act just just like it and having this this habit and i i learn about self uh, let's say self-awareness through jujitsu through competition when I start to study more about uh, mental training and seeing like the stories that I used to make up before tournaments or matches or what I'm going through and that brought a lot of anxiety for sure because you focus on things that you have no control you're making this crazy story in your head and I like to call it the the dark passenger we all have the voice the negative voice that whether you like or you don't um, that's your roommate for life. You're going to have the negative voice. It's not going to disappear. Uh, negative patterns, doubts, insecurities, they don't disappear. You learn how to become conscious of it. So then you can self-regulate. And to do that, you have to be self-aware. You have to be aware of like, I like to call uh, the karate block. When you come to the wave of thoughts come in, you're like, hey, psh, you know, stop and you kind of filter those thoughts like, wait, wait a minute now. Wait, okay, do I have control of it? Is it rational, irrational? It's not okay, move on. But yeah, man, it's a, a 24-7 practice. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think that you touched down on something as well that I find very important that I'd like to mention is, and the thing that jiu-jitsu really helps is you, helps you living in the, in the moment. And I feel like a lot of us get stuck in things in the past that we can't change and we get depressed about it or we start thinking about certain things that are coming in the future that we don't want to attract. And, you know, we, we go from depressed to anxious instead of living in the moment where I feel like jiu-jitsu is a great tool for that because it forces you to sit there and really solve the problems that are in front of you. And I feel like if you can do, if you can take that area and what you do in that and add it to your, your life, you're going to be a hundred times more happy and more successful because you'll be able to focus on the things that you want to do and the tasks that you want to solve and not worrying about things that are in the past and not stressing it or, you know, not being anxious about things that are in the future. Just let that come. Yeah. So what did you say is the best advice that I've ever received? The best advice that I ever received. It's a hard one because I've, I've received, you know, a lot of really good advice but I, I think that the the best bit of advice that I received, and this is also subjective because I don't, you know, a lot of this is theory, but just that your thoughts create your environment and you attract certain situations. And I know this has been debated a lot and it's more quantum theory than anything, but, and, and you'll, you'll read this if you ever read The Secret or um, uh, Think and Grow Rich. But it, it basically talks about the things that you focus on, you're going to attract. And I feel like it kind of all goes together, but that was one of the main things that I started realizing, well, I need to think about what I want to attract and not in a negative sense, like a lot of people think, oh, I don't want to have bills, but that's just going to attract more bills. So I'd be focusing on abundance of what I have and really being the person that I want to 
you know, be in the future. If it wants to be, if I want to be a successful, you know, person, I need to carry myself like that. And if you build it, they will come is, is another sort of side passage that I think that's super important because I know that if I want to achieve something and this could be in anything, I really need to become the person that would be worthy of that achievement. And I feel like once you do that, the right things manage just to float your way. And this has happened to me so many different times. And it's something that takes a lot of discipline because you don't really have any evidence that it's going to happen, but you know, when you do it, it really does happen. So if I wanted to be anything and this varies for individual I try and become that person that would attract that. If I want to, you know, be a, an amazing actor, I need to live like an amazing actor would live. Or if I want to be an entrepreneur, live, live like that. You know, there's no point of thinking you're going to be successful and having your head down and your shoulders forward and slouching everywhere. You got to have your chest up, your head up, feel confident, act like you would. And, and things just, they just seem to change. So I think the, the, the best thing I was ever introduced to were, was quantum theory. And I would advise anyone to, to look it up because it's, it's a very complex uh, theory. But I feel like it really changed my life because I started really understanding or believing that nothing is set and I can really achieve anything I want as long as I'm uh, willing to believe that. Kind of the, the law of attraction. You know, exactly, the law the, of attraction. Yeah, and... Again, comes back the Jim Rome's quote, success is something that you attract by the person you become. And practicing that daily, man, absolutely, that's the way to go. Now, if you have to give an advice to a younger version, not that you want anything different in your life, you know, you were where you're at in your life because of the, the choices that you made. But let's say when you started your jujitsu journey, what advice would you give to the younger kid? to quit jujitsu and do something <laughs> that doesn't hurt your body as much. <laughs> now I would, uh, I would just, I would tell him to not be attached to outcomes mm -hmm. because I, I feel like the biggest thing that hurt me in, in jujitsu. And I feel like this is for a lot of people is we identify as certain things. And one of my biggest problems was I identified as a winner earlier on. So my first ever tournament I won and I remember I was in the change rooms and these two guys come up to me and they just said, that was so good to watch you win. That was so inspirational. And cause I was a white belt and I beat a blue belt at the tournament and two, two blue belts actually. And I felt so good about myself because they were really pumping up my ego. And from that moment on, I really like, I, I was always chasing that feeling and I was, I, I didn't lose a jujitsu match until I was purple belt. And actually, no, sorry, I didn't lose a match in my weight division until I was purple belt, but I lost as a blue belt in the Abu Dhabi open weight finals to a Lloyd Irvin student. Um, excuse me. I was so attached to being a winner and I was so worried about what other people thought of me that I created such a stressful environment in my own head because I thought things like this. I would think that if I lose everyone's going to think I'm a loser and not respect me and not appreciate me. And, and uh, I, I kind of played this story out that I was like the center of attention in, in, in a way, like when I was competing, I would think that everyone's opinion of me is based on the outcome of that match. And I, I didn't really realize that no one really cares that much. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's like everyone's doing their own thing. Most of the people there are competitors themselves and they're sitting there thinking about their own match. Even the coaches, like a real good coach just wants, you know, the student to do the best they can. And they're happy if they do that. Uh, a selfish coach might want them to win to, to pump up the name of their, of their academy. But a real good coach and a good friend just wants them to do as good as they can and they're happy with that. And I feel like if you, if you understand this, you're not only going to pr- like be much better as a competitor and as an, as an artist, but you're going to have a much better mindset because we do certain things in training to avoid looking like a loser. For example, we'll, we will compete while training instead of practicing and learning. We would generally not take as many risks and work in areas that we need to practice because we're worried about what people think of us. So you get guys that are what you would call talented people that just come to training to win instead of to, you know, expose their own area, you know, expose own weaknesses and work on that. So I I feel like the best thing I could have told myself is to not worry what anyone thinks and understand this is a journey of self discovery. And all that matters is, you know, what's going on in your own head and, and, and how you, how you act to the problems that are coming up in that journey. So that's what I would tell them. Don't worry about what people think. That is a great advice. And I totally relate with that. I started, I've been training for uh, right now in December, be 30 years. So I didn't have a chance to compete as a teenager. And when I look back, um, how hard I was attaching, you know, the, the outcome of, of, of my self-esteem. And, and I do have talks with my students that I say, don't, don't mix things up. You as an athlete, you as a human being, it's not because you're winning, you're this incredible human being. Now you're, you're losing, you're this, this crap. And don't, don't mix things up. And I like to tell them, don't fight for your self-esteem because when you fight for your self-esteem, you're going to bring a lot of anxiety, unnecessary anxiety to the competition. And that's what I did for many years, especially when it was the beginning. Amaya was the opposite. I, I lost a lot. So I lost first tournament, second, third, fourth, fifth. I'm talking about first match. So by this point, I have zero confidence and I'm not even trying to win a tournament. I try to win a match, you know, and, <laughs> and some of my, my friends that don't train making fun of me, like, dude, you lose all the time. Have you ever won a match? You know, so I'm not telling people anymore that I'm competing, you know? So now I'm taking extra anxiety because now I want to prove to them that I'm not a loser. Uh-huh. So I just got caught in a vicious cycle. And a lot of people do. They'll be like, man, last time I already lost. Well, this time, oh boy, I, I have to win, you know? Yeah. And then you lose. And then that means extra anxiety for next tournament. It'd be like, I already lost this too. And so it took me a long time to start like getting better at jujitsu and start getting results, still facing my demons, but being able to get some good results here and there to like to really get my confidence really high and, and good. And then moving to the U S changing my, the priorities of my life to like tanking my confidence to eventually start to build it back up. So that, that kind of really that, that roller coaster, but, but the, the, the root of everything is exactly what he said, you know, just um, focus on that outcome and relying on the outcome of a tournament to feel good about myself. And unfortunately, a lot of people still do that. So I, I do my best 
to share with my students about that. Like, man, the most important thing that I want after a tournament, we just had, a, I did like a mental preparation class last week because we had a tournament uh, a week ago. And, and I tell them, the number one thing that I want you to tell me after the tournament, you know, Monday, regardless of the outcome, is that you are at peace with your performance. You know, maybe you won like, man, I, I won. I, I felt good because you can win and feel like crap and anxious as hell. You know what I mean? But but I'm saying like I had performances that I lost, but I felt great. But I, I was at peace. I was like, you know what? The guy did better. I messed up the script. Here's a technical mistake. No problem. So and I told him that's what I want. I want you with this uh, internal peace. However, there's nothing better than a combination of internal peace and a gold medal, let's be honest. You know what I mean? When you feel good and you win, it's incredible because, uh, yeah, there's sometimes you compete like crap and win. Sometimes you compete great and lose. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel the same thing. I play a lot of poker now and I have the same thing. Sometimes I play really well and I'm just unlucky. And then sometimes I play so crap and I win. And I've got to make sure that I'm happy when I play well, even if I lose than when I win by playing, playing badly. And you know this as well, jujitsu, you're one mistake from winning and you're one mistake from losing every single match. And let's say me and you have never rolled. If we went to roll today, who knows what would happen because we're both figuring each other out and anything can happen. I might have a certain trick that you've never seen. You might have a certain trick and you might catch me off guard. And this is what you see in tournaments so often is some guy is not that great, but he has one little trick that he catches everyone with. And suddenly he's looked at as the, the best person in the world, but it's not really true. Competition is not a, a true indicator of who the best people in the world are. There's so many different factors to come into this. One, you know, how did they perform on that day? How was their lead up to that competition? How were the brackets set up? Uh, what kind of environment was it? Did you travel? Did you get jet lag? All these kind of things. You know, did you have a bad night's sleep so you didn't think that well? When we train continuously, it's like a game of tennis. You know, we go back and forth. You get me, I get you. Maybe I pass here. Maybe, and it goes back and forth, and we start figuring each other's games out. We start trying to strategically defeat each other, which is much more enjoyable for me as well because it becomes more of a strategy than just uh, trying to surprise someone with athleticism or with a certain technique. So I think if people understand realistically, just because you lost the competition doesn't mean that guy's better than you. And just because you won doesn't mean you're better than him. It's just a, it's just a small game amongst this art that we're all practicing. And, and the true, you know, mastery in that is when you can go back and forth and like someone can beat you with something and then you can change certain things and you can adapt. So they can't do that again. Maybe they beat you here and now you change certain things again. That's the fun in jiu-jitsu. And unfortunately, competition doesn't cater for that style of, of, uh, of competition because you know, obviously there's 3,400 people competing. You can't have a, you know, a tennis-like match. You have to have a quick six-minute, 10-minute sprint race. And I, I feel like we train jiu-jitsu like it is a, a marathon, but we compete like it's a sprint. And it, I think if people understand that a lot more, they'll be a lot less attached to that image of having to be a winner and, and worried about what True. people think as well. So what is a book that you would recommend? Maybe a book that has made an impact on you at some point and why? I think uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, <laughs> no, I do like that book though. Uh, I think there's two best books that, I, I, that stick out to me. One was The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Mm -hmm. and, I, 
it really introduced a lot of good concepts like the 80-20 rule that Alfredo Prado come up with an Italian economist that basically stated that he found discovered a law that stated that 80% of your results come from 20% of your actions and that 20% of your results come from 80% of your actions. So basically, most of your progression comes from a small part of what you're doing. And the goal is to figure out what is that small part and maximize that instead of wasting your time doing all these different things that really get you nothing. Uh, you'll find that in business. 80% of your customers give you 20% of your income. The 20% of your customers will give you 80% of your income. So you might as well get rid of the 80 that are giving you nothing and maximize the 20 that are giving you the most. So that was a really good book. Uh, the other one was Think and Grow Rich. I feel like it's a very dense book but it really helps you understand your mind and, and how, especially as an entrepreneur, how to change the way you're thinking and viewing things to have long-term success. So I think that was a, another great book. And honestly, I could go on for ages, but those are the two favorites. Yeah, both. Uh, I really enjoyed four hour work week was definitely a game changer for me when that came around that definitely, man, a lot of like just lights just started to like, Oh crap. And that 80, 20 uh, rule as well. When you got that rule, do you remember some of the adjustments that you started making because of that, the 80-20? Yeah, I changed the way I was training completely. I, I really looked at jiu-jitsu differently after that because I noticed that I stopped doing the drilling portion of training and the technique portion of training very early on in my career. And I seemed to excel a lot quicker while training far less than the other students. So I noticed that uh, the 20% of the 20 of action that was giving me the 80% of results was in the specific training and the free rolling. And there's a reason why is because we do something with our minds completely the whole time when we're doing specific training and free rolling. We do a, a cyclical, well, a cycle of, and it's, a, it's like a feedback loop consistently. We just keep doing the same cycle. So what we do is it's called problem solving. We analyze a situation. We come up with a solution, we act, and then we evaluate its success. We take the new information we just gathered. Was it successful? Was it not? Was it too far? Was it too short? Was his limbs too long, for example? You take that new information and then you come back to the start. Now you analyze the situation with new information you just gathered. You come up with a new solution, you execute that, and then you evaluate it again. Maybe you were further from the truth this time. So you take more information and suddenly... As you keep doing this, your knowledge and information starts growing more and more and you start becoming a much better problem solver because when it comes to problems to solving these problems, you already have so much information on how to solve them. So I started just training like that and I got so much better, so much quicker. So that was like one of the main reasons, like reasons I excelled quite quickly was because of that book because I kind of realized that I was getting better mainly because of the problem solving I was doing in live training and the drilling and the technique portion really wasn't giving me much. So I ended up going from white to black in four years while training one to five times a day, a week, sorry, not a day, one to five times a week while still working a job uh, for a lot of that as well. So that was one huge part of the 80-20 rule that really changed the way I restructured training. Yeah, the 8020 is also called the, the power law. And would you say there was mainly so did you do a lot of uh, situationals too? Like yeah. um, heaps of so I call it specific training, but situational sparring mm -hmm. was what I probably did more than anything. And I I don't do that as much now because uh, I can force the roles into certain areas myself that I, that I feel like I want to work. I train with a lot of really good wrestlers. So I'll, I'll force it to become a wrestling match because I feel like I want to give myself every, every uh, chance to learn from them as well. 
But um, with the what was the question again? I forgot your question was um, about situational, like specific training. Oh, yeah. You know, using it. Yeah, specific training I think is the best tool to improve in jiu-jitsu because you can create, you can force yourself to learn in a specific area of training that's very hard to if you're just free rolling. Most likely you might just get mounted for nine minutes and sit there defending and not really learn a lot. But if you can create specific training or positional sparring, it's so important because you can really focus on an area and gather a lot of information and a lot of skill and a lot of knowledge in a short period of time and then move on to a different area, different area, and then come back every you know week or you know every couple of days to to refresh that information. So I feel like that has been the main part of my training coming up. There is a really good book on this that is extremely dense with its with its linguistics called uh, Skill Acquisition in Sport that I recommend anyone read if you want to understand how you learn things on a, a fundamental level much better because it is quite complicated. And I do understand why certain people have such a contrasted view on excelling in jiu-jitsu. There's half of people that are telling you you have to drill techniques and it's the most important part. And then you have other half saying you don't need to drill techniques at all. And it's, it can be detrimental as it is uh, beneficial. So I feel like if you really want to understand this, you have to go to the experts on pedagogy that have done all the case studies and skill acquisition in sport is going to give you such a good understanding of how people learn that you're not going to need to ask this question anymore. But that is a game changer because it, it really talks about and breaks down fundamental theories on learning and how a lot of the older theories no longer hold the same weight because there was a lot of things that they didn't understand. I was talking about the 80-20 rule basically um, last week in class because one of the uh, the specific training that I like and I and I do that probably like every class because uh, sometimes people just get like okay five six minute rounds or five seven around or whatever exactly like like that sometimes you're like okay I'm gonna today I want to work on this card and then someone pass and then maybe in a third round to get to use it again or, or something you know yeah. so. Uh, I like to do one of the trainings that I do a lot. Yeah, bottom, trying to make something happen, sweep a submit, top, trying to pass. But I do sometimes like, okay, six minutes, one person is responsible for pulling guard. Whatever pulling guard style we use, I don't care. The other person responsible for getting a takedown. We got to take down, keep going for pull, you know, and then if you pass, great, move back, we just do it again. And I was mentioning that, man, I would say, I don't know, there's not a, like some specific data with this, but I feel like 80% of the time you're either passing or playing guard, you yeah. know, the other 20%, I mean, yeah, you get into a dominant position and, or oh, we're not, but uh, I feel that, uh, so that's why every, almost every class I need to include to them at least like two rounds of that of whatever, even seven minutes, just one person pulling anyway. Cause let's say like, if you're a lighter guy and you, and you like to play uh, to pull fast, Get in the habit of this because you know that it can go bad. Can someone can blitz you? Can get in trouble. So get in the habit of pulling quick and dealing with people blitzing. If you, if you need to take your time, so a lot of people are counting guard pulls really well, hopping over and doing all kinds of uh, uh, athletic stuff. So people need to be more aware of that. And it's just getting. It's just basically is find a way to get to your game. Whatever your the guard system that you're gonna play, start from your feet and okay. Try to do the best you can to get to the system. So, uh, 
we've been doing a, a back system for for a little bit now with a with my mixed level class. I'm gonna do a lot of specifics too. Some are just uh, attacking it back, some just maintaining or escaping or finishing and stuff like that. And I think people definitely could use more. It, uh, I do, I like for myself that even days, this I, I, I learned a long time ago, there's days uh, of the week, depending on how many days out of train. But if I was training for a competition, one day that I'm coming to the school just to play bottom. Mm-hmm. And then one day I'm coming in, I just ask my partner, is that okay if I just play top today? Start so burning feet, the same thing. And then there's the full round days that I do, you know, um, you know, basically uh, full rolling. But yeah, the 80-20, it's, uh, man, super important. So many areas, jujitsu business. And it's a great book for all the entrepreneurs out there for our work week. Uh, incredible, man. I still have a lot of the concepts that I use to this day. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what you're doing is perfect because it's, it's such a, I, I do a lot of sweep or submit style training where someone starts in their guard and they've got to try and sweep the opponent and the other person's got to pass because like you said, it is a position where I agree. I think 80% of jujitsu is, if not more is spent in that, in that area. So it's important to maximize your skill level in that rather than some people will spend so much time in, in certain niche areas where you, you know, you practice so much in there, but you barely ever get to that position. So yeah. it's important to, to, to really use. And I think there are some, I think flow grappling come up with some kind of uh, case studies on this, how much time people were spending in, in guard and, and vice cool. versa. And I, I agree with you a hundred percent on that. One other thing that I want to add to that is uh, there's a, there's a, uh, a law of learning called the arousal, emotional arousal theory. That's it talks about the amygdala's role in how how deep to store information. So it basically it discovered that the amygdala is in charge of how deep how deep we store information, depending on how emotionally aroused we are, whether we're scared or excited or whatnot. To give you an example of this, an emotionally aroused uh, arousing situation would be nine eleven. And most people you ask, uh, September 11th, 9-11, where were you? And they can remember where they were and what it felt yeah. like. Now, if I ask you what you did, you know, what you were doing five days later, you probably wouldn't remember because there was no real emotional content to that unless five days later something also as serious happened. So what they discovered is like the, the amygdala's role in, you know, is, is in keeping you alive. You know, you have the fight or flight uh, situations that happens from the amygdala to keep you alive. And basically, the reason why you store information deeper is whenever you're in a a dire situation where you're extremely scared or you're in a fight, it takes in all the information subconsciously to make sure that whenever you're in that uh, that same environment again, it automatically gets you ready to fight or to run. Now, it has to do that to keep you alive, so it stores the information deeper. In jujitsu, when you're doing specific training and free rolling, it's high stakes situation because you want to win. You don't want to lose. You want to practice stuff. You're emotionally yep. aroused and you store much, like information much deeper when doing the specific training and the free rolling than what you would do if you're just practicing a technique because there's no, there's no uh, high stakes in that situation unless your coach is looking at you and you want to make sure you do it <laughs> perfect. You know, So it's, a, it's another little thing that people don't really pay much attention to is memory retention and why certain activities are going to give you much better memory retention in the long run. 100% agree. Now, getting close to the end of the interview for people who are listening for the first time, usually after the interview, I just reflect on what was said and I 
think about a takeaway and I create a content from five to 12 minutes, an audio to inspire, impact and or improve your life in some way. So whenever I start editing, I'll, I'll reflect on and, and then uh, just right after the interview, what I call the final thoughts. So what are you currently excited about? What is going on? Well, I just released a new product that we're super excited about called The Art of Mastering Jiu-Jitsu. And this is my largest product. It's about five hours long. It's shot with really good quality cameras and uh, a really nice studio at Meraki that uh, Kenny Florian owns over here in Santa Monica. I shot a new program and uh, I really wanted to deliver it in a platform that Jiu-Jitsu uh, hasn't really utilized yet. I feel like it's kind of ahead of the time at the moment. It's on Teachable, which is a, a new platform of learning. And basically, I've broken all the, the videos down into smaller clips. And they're about anywhere between three to 10 minutes long. And the user can select, you know, subcategories and categories. They can go in the guard category and then they can look at sweeps from guard and, you know, where I focus on the conceptual idea on how to sweep anyone and then certain more niche positions. But it's really allowing people to one view on their, on their phones very easily on laptops. It's a really good streaming uh, service like Netflix is. And you can also see like your uh, progress through there. It tells you how much of the videos you've watched. So you know where you're at. You can come back to it very easily. You can leave comments and you can talk to other people that are watching it. So I'm really trying to create uh, a real fresh online school for people to learn conceptually and understand my my philosophies on learning and stuff like that. So we just released that and uh, it's going really well. I think we've got 380 students signed up to it now and uh, we want to keep building on that and just keep adding to that platform and new videos and it's going to eventually become a hub for jujitsu in a different sense to what we see at the moment, because you've got kind of BJJ fanatics leading the way with the technical stuff. And if you want to practice techniques, that's great. But if you want to understand the more mental side of it and the uh, conceptual side, that's what I'm doing over there. And I'm talking to some other really big coaches at the moment. I won't name names, but multiple time world champions that also train jujitsu the way I train. And uh, we really want to create a new hub for the conceptual learner to really understand the mindset of what's going on and the philosophies and stuff like that. So it's a lot more about, you know, what you've done here with the mindset, you know, it's what we're going to try and do there with the jujitsu and learning in jujitsu. Right on, man. Man, it's been a great interview. Great chat. I appreciate it, man, all your time. No, thank you, man. It's been a lot of fun. Right on. So for all the listeners, stick around for my final thoughts. Who's... Let me share with you my final thoughts from the interview with Australian black belt Kid Dale. If you're listening just to the final thoughts on Instagram TV at Gustavo Dantas BJJ, Kid's training website, KidDaleTraining.com, is one of the world's leading online training resources for BJJ. He has sold over 17,000 online training videos coupled with over 8 million views on YouTube. It was a solid interview. We probably could have talked a lot longer. He spoke about overcoming self-limiting beliefs that held him back for many years and how mentors help him through this process. He also talked about the importance of surrounding yourself with like-minded people. My takeaway from this episode came towards the end of the interview when he shared the 80-20 rule, which is also known as the power law or Pareto law, and how he applies in jiu-jitsu and business, which inspired me to title this episode the 80-20 rule in BJJ and life. 
1906, the Italian Vilfredo Pereiro noticed the rule for the first time in his own garden. What he noticed was that 20% of the pea pods generated 80% of the healthy peas. And this observation led him to notice that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by 20% of the population. The concept of Pareto law states that 20% of input or activity are responsible for 80% outputs or results. For example, 80% of the time, you wear 20% of the clothes that you own. Or 80% of your income comes from only 20% of your customers. And the inverse is also true. 80% of your customers are generating only 20% results. However, you should note that this is not a universal law, and it can differ in many situations. It could be 70, 30, 90, 10, 90, 91. The point is the imbalance of distribution. The majority of results come from the minority of causes, and the minority of results come from the majority of causes. Now, how can you use the 80-20 rule in your everyday life? I'm going to share with you two suggestions of how you can use the 80-20 rule in your personal and professional life. Let's start with the professional life. However, this also can be used for personal. 80% of the results are coming from 20% of your efforts. It's not about the time you put in. It's about how well you spend that time. Very often, people get confused about the difference of being busy and productive. So be careful when you're creating a to-do list. Let's say you have a list with the top 10 things you must do to achieve the success you desire. Now, which two things will help to move the needle even faster? Choose, then focus on this 20% that will give you 80% of your results. Very often, people end up focusing on the 80% of the task because of some discomfort or fear of the necessary task of 20%. Always put the most uncomfortable task on the top of your list and at the beginning of the day because when you put at the end of the day, sometimes it's to talk yourself out of it. Nah, it's too late. I can't get it done tomorrow. Is this a task that is going to help you to get one step closer to your goal? If so, you must do it. My second suggestion is for your personal life. As I mentioned during the interview, the late motivational speaker Jim Rome said, we are the average of the five people that we hang out the most with. He called the power of the association. Now, my question to you is, who do you hang out with? The 80-20 rule shows that 20% of your friends, family give you 80% of your fulfillment and joy that you get from social interactions. The other friends the 80% are giving you 20% of fulfillment. With that being said, this is a good time to reevaluate your personal association. Jim Rohn suggests three questions. Number one, who do you hang out with? Who do you spend the most amount of time with? Sometimes it could be a coworker that sits next to you for eight hours a day who is extremely negative and toxic. However, it could be someone who is positive and inspire you. Number two, what kind of person are you becoming because of the influence of these associations? Again, what kind of person are you becoming because of the influence of these associations? Which means, where do you go? What do you say? What do you eat? What habits did you pick up because of the influence of this specific association? Number three, now the most important question in my opinion. Is that okay? 
according to your values and morals, is there any problem with the action of this association and the person that you're becoming? I hope the answer is no and everything is great. Now, if the answer is yes and you're actually not happy, something needs to be done so you can get your 80% of fulfillment and you can become a 20% person to someone else. Basically, Jim Rome gives three options that I personally use in my life. Number one, delete. If you feel that this association is very toxic for you, you already have talked with a person and the negativity doesn't stop, I guess delete them. Number two, limit time with the association. This is the best one for family and relatives issues. Some people are okay to spend a few minutes with it, but not a few hours. Some people are okay to hang out for a few hours, but not for a few days. You get the picture. Limit the time with the association. And third, expand association. For example, I also mentioned during the interview that in 2012, I got involved with public speaking. At that moment in my life, I didn't have anyone from my associations that knew anything about it. So I joined Toastmasters. It's a public speaking club. It's all over the world. You can find it at toastmastersinternational.org to learn more about it and to develop relationships. From the Toastmasters, my mentor, Drew Weldon, took me to the National Speakers Association. When I joined the NSA, they were starting their first public speaking academy, and I signed up at the spot. During this 10-month course, I met my future wife, Carissa, and today we've been together for almost six years, and she's a huge part of my 20% that brings me fulfillment and joy in my social interactions. Now, what about you? Who are your 20% that are bringing fulfillment and joy in your life? Use the 80-20 rule in any area of your life. If you can identify the 20% that produces the greatest outcome, you can spend more time doing that to create an even greater payoff. And it also helps you to cut back on the 80% of things that waste your time being busy, which creates 20% of your results. Remember, it's not about the amount of time you put in. It's about how well you spend that time. Oh, We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.